0: everyone doing it's super cool super cool to see uh, a lot of Thrive Kitsap people here tonight it's like there's been a coup and they've just like taken over they're like leading the worship and uh, Brad was I almost half expected to see Brad like on the soundboard just like kicking Tyler out of his place and trying to run it himself but Brad's too nice or something like that and then like it's cool to see some some people who are new here tonight um, we have a yo-yo champion in the house, I don't want to you know, make him feel too funny, but there's a guy here that you ought to know who's a, a pretty good yo-yo master, and then who else do we got? I, I don't know, I haven't had the chance to talk to everyone here, but hey, so good to see everyone. Um, I have my work cut out for me tonight. Um, we are going to be doing um, kind of a special message here tonight at Thrive, and uh, I got stuck with it, so uh, you'll just have to give me some grace as I, as I take up kind of a, an unusual topic here tonight. Um, If this is your first time tonight, by the way, uh, you you picked a really good night to be here. It's also a really different night than what we usually do. Uh, Normally, what happens is our our MO is that we um, hear some kind of message out of a book of the Bible. We've been looking at the book of Romans recently. Um, But what we've been saying is that periodically, um, we are going to pause and look at what we're calling hot potatoes in Romans. There's the uh, slide there for you. And what we mean by hot potatoes in Romans, we're talking about tricky topics in this book that that are culturally hot and hard to handle. So our first hot potato a couple of months ago was called, Is God Anti-Gay? And it had to do with some stuff that the book of Romans says about homosexuality in chapter 1. And tonight, we are coming to another hot potato. And this time, it's based on some stuff That Paul, the author of this book, says in Romans chapter 7 about struggling with sin. And and so last week we were looking at that chapter and and we read these words about the battle with sin that confronts every believer. So they're going to be up on screen. I'm going to read these. These are uh, what we talked about last week. Uh, It says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And I don't know about you, but for me, it's next to impossible to read words like that and not say, like, dang it, I've been there. And I think just about every believer in Jesus has had the experience of being there, of of trying to overcome a repeated pattern of sin only to fail and then feel smothered by guilt and shame. So tonight and next week, what we're going to do is we're going to apply what Romans has been saying about struggling with sin to a particular struggle, and that's the struggle of pornography and sexual addiction. And all of a sudden it gets really quiet. I'll explain why, by the way, we've landed on this particular topic in a minute out of all the different struggles of sin that we could, we could look at, but I just want to tell you that, that for the next two weeks, we're going to deal with one of the great elephants in the room in the church, which is the subject of pornography and sexual sin. Um, I was just talking to someone here tonight who said that like, in the six years that she's been in church, she has never heard a single message on what we're going to talk about tonight. And so we're going we're gonna to do a series within a series that's going to be called Jesus, Sex, and Secrets. Um, up on the screen are just some names of people who have been a huge help to me as I've prepared this. Um, one of them, Jake Chambers, is the guy I stole this sermon series title from. It's pretty good. And then um, some other folks up there as well, including my mom. My mom helped me prepare for a talk on porn. I think it's, uh, I don't know what to make about that. But uh, it's It's true. Um, I have some, some things for you, too, by the way. If I could get, like, two volunteers, one for this side of the room, one for this side of the room. Uh, tonight, this is just such an important topic that I actually have a handout that you guys can use and, and follow along as we look at it. So, Allison, if you could just be sure everyone gets one of those. Um, and just, I want to say a few things before really kind of diving into this. Uh, the first thing is that I want to acknowledge that even talking about the words like pornography and sexual sin, it, it it's, brings up a lot of discomfort. Especially in a Christian setting like this, because churches very often don't make this a subject of public conversation. And and sometimes our mentality, even in the church, is like, let's just let these things languish. Let's, like, hide them in the dark. Let's ignore them, pretend they don't exist. And the reality is, is that they do truly exist. And, And we Christians are just as much sexual sinners as other humans. And sometimes because we're so caught up in putting on the religious mask, we actually make it worse. So we have to talk about it, even though it's hard, even though tonight might very well be a really emotional night for you. We've gotta talk about it, and I think the Thrive community is actually ready for it, um, because it's it's way too important to ignore this. So so that's the first thing. The second thing is that the the point in, in focusing over the next two weeks on pornography is not to single out a particular group of people. You know, what you'll hear tonight is relevant for you if you're someone who's struggling personally, It's also going to be relevant if you aren't someone who wants to help a friend who who struggles. And the point is also not to hold one struggle above another. You know, there are all kinds of struggles with sin. You know, you could struggle with like laziness or anger or stubbornness or pride. The reason for taking time on this particular one is that I can't think of another subject that has brought about like more pain and bondage and heartache. I mean, this is something that's taking down pastors it's something that's taking down marriages and families, and it's taking down our generation. Um, it's, it's, like, such a huge issue if you're a millennial, if you're, like, a Gen Z person. So, um, just felt like, man, it's pastoral malpractice not to, not to talk about this. And then, just finally, I just want to say that, like, I want to acknowledge how personal and emotional this is. Because sexual brokenness, it encompasses all kinds of struggles and experiences Which means that, like, man, on a a sermon series like Jesus, Sex and Secrets, there are all kinds of things you could talk about. It could be masturbation, which I shared last week. That was the big struggle I faced in my first two years of high school until God showed up in that. You know, it could be, like, pornography or fantasy or voyeurism or bestiality or reading erotica. Like, there are all kinds of things that would fall under this umbrella. And so even though tonight our focus is going to be on pornography, I just want to acknowledge, like, there are all kinds of experiences that we might have in this room. And I want to especially acknowledge that when it comes to sexual brokenness, one form of that that could be really personal to you is actually sexual sin that may have been committed against you, including rape or sexual abuse or being cheated on. And, and even though this topic isn't our main focus, I, I bring this up because this would be a really tender area for anyone in the room who's had to undergo that experience. And I, I want to just say that we, I hope and pray that like tonight would be a first step in kind of finding some healing from that. But I also just say it for the benefit of everyone in the room, that, that regardless of whether we have been sinned against or not sexually, and regardless of whether we look at pornography or not, all of us are sexual sinners. All of us are entering into an area that for most, if not all of us, is a big stronghold of guilt and shame. So let me just be super clear that like the golden night is not, to make you feel shame about your past. It's actually to make you feel excited about your future because of the power of the gospel. And, I, and man, I dream of Thrive experiencing an outpouring of freedom and joy and passion for God through this series. Through like sin being confessed and lives being healed and hearts being broken So I want to encourage you, like, encourage each other tonight. Build each other up. This is not about, like, trying to figure out, you know, everyone else's stuff so you have more stuff to gossip about. No, like, we're all just a bunch of beggars trying to help other beggars find bread. So contend for your brothers and sisters. I mean, contend for everyone in this room so that all of us would know the abundant life that Jesus came to offer. Sound good? Okay, so here's our roadmap for the next two weeks. This first week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer some teaching about how Jesus meets us in our sin and in our secrets. After that, instead of our normal small group time, usually what happens if you're new is we have like five or six different small groups, guys and girls. Tonight we're doing something different. We're going to split into two big groups, one for guys, one for girls. And we're going to have the chance to process what we've heard. And then next week, we're going to be joined by a special guest who will be sharing some of his testimony of finding victory over sexual sin. And following that, we're going to have a Q&A panel where if any questions from, from tonight or from next week are raised, that's the opportunity to ask those. You can do that anonymously. You don't need to like raise your hand and say like, hey, I have this awkward question. You can, you can do it anonymously. You can text them in. And so I actually have here a box that has some pieces of paper and some, some pencils. Uh, Jeremiah, I'm going to start this down here with you. If you want to just grab a couple of slips of paper, maybe a writing utensil, and at any point during the night, if you want to write down a question, fold it up, that box will be by the entrance at the end of the night. You can drop it in that box, and that can be submitted for the panel next week. So that's the, kind of the overall roadmap of the next two weeks. But tonight, it's even simpler. All I want to do is I want to share a little introduction about porn, and then I want to break down two different ways that we might look at those things. One way I'm calling the, the, the way of defeat and what I mean by that is that there is, there is a strategy, there is an approach to dealing with sexual sin that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the other way is the way of grace. And this way can lead to victory because it's the grace of God that changes everything. And then after that, I just want to talk about like, what practical steps toward healing look like, whether it's you who struggle or it's a friend who struggles. So that's where we're going. Um, I'm going to pray because uh, I really need God's help. (laughs) And then we're going to go. Dear Lord, would you just help me? Um, Would you help us? Um, Father, I just pray that um, you would just break open um, any strongholds of guilt or shame or sin. And just set us free by the gospel of grace. Amen. Okay, so here we go. I, I want to start with a little introduction by looking at five big lies about porn. So these are on your handout. The first lie is just this really simple one that it's not actually a big deal. Like, this is what our culture says. It's becoming more and more and more widely acceptable to say, well, it's just a personal thing. Like, it doesn't affect anyone. And, and if I want to, like, kind of please me, then that's my thing. It's, it's no one else's business, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, say, like, if you're, if you're hungry, you go eat a hamburger. If you're thirsty, go drink a Coke. And if you're feeling horny, go watch porn. That's the mentality that our broader culture would have. And actually, in the church, it would even seem sometimes that we agree that porn doesn't matter that much because we're not talking about it. But, but the, the, the problem with porn is not going to go away by simply not talking about it because I want to share with you some, some statistics. These are the stats from one pornography website. For just one pornography website in one year, the total bandwidth of data for that website, 3,110 petabytes. Now I never heard of what a petabyte was, uh, but I I can tell you, what is this number? It's 3,110,400,000 gigabytes. Now imagine that you were to print all of that bandwidth out on, on sheets of eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. That would be I, what is this number? Two hundred and one trillion, four hundred ninety-seven billion, nine hundred thirty-two million, eight hundred thousand pages. That's one pornography website. You could take the all that stuff, and, and if you were to, to to like stack it up in a stack, and then take that stack and like wrap it around the globe as though it were a big belt, it would wrap around the Earth five hundred and two times. If you were to take all of that paper, and if you were to, to to put them in four drawer file cabinets, you know, so the thing that's kind of like, you know, about this big, this tall, 52 inches tall, 25 inches wide or whatever. Actually, I measured one this week to find out. You could fill, oh my gosh, 20,149,793,280 of those file cabinets. If you were to place those file cabinets end to end in a football field, they'd form a tower 747.6 miles high. And did you know how many of those file cabinets represent porn watched by children? Six billion, 44 million, 937,984. That's the bandwidth from one pornography website for one year. Does anyone know how many pornographic websites there are on the internet? The answer is 42 million. And the porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL the NBA, and the MLB combined. It generates $3,000 per second. So it's not gonna, it can't just be swept under the rug. Porn is everywhere, and it's, it's devastating our generation more than any other that has grown up with instant access and affordability, you don't have to go pay for porn anymore, and anonymity, an all from the privacy of your own computer or your own smartphone. Let me just read you some of the stats here that are on your paper. According to the numbers, 76% of Christian men ages 18 to 24 actively seek out pornography. 21% of pastors and 14% of youth pastors admit that they currently struggle with porn. The average age of exposure for a child is 11 years old. And by age 14, 94% of children will have seen pornography. This is such a huge deal. It's such a huge deal. And it's not just a personal thing. And it it, it does harm to other people. But especially it will harm you yourself. I mean, just think of the picture that this generates for our generation. People who are our age, who are young adults. Pornography has turned us into a sexually stunted generation. I mean, it used to be that by by the age that we are, you would be married. You'd have established a, like a, a, a career already by your early 20s. But because of just how widespread the porn problem is in, in our age group, we can now turn to porn, to masturbation, to fill sexual desires. And what that means is that you can meet your sexual desires without the hard work of becoming the kind of person who can sustain a healthy relationship. So it's no surprise that like marriage statistics have tanked because we don't know how to relate to other people anymore. The numbers say that those who, who use porn frequently are less likely to marry. Those who do are, are stunted because porn has distorted and devastated the capacity for healing sex. It becomes harder to be sexually aroused. It becomes harder to delight in your spouse. It's easier for your spouse to struggle with body image. It's easy for your spouse to feel like they can't perform well enough sexually. We, this is, this is a fact, that comes from a, like a professional PhD sexual addiction therapist who says that we are prescribing Viagra for 19-year-old boys with erectile dysfunction because they've watched so much porn that they can't get aroused by a normal human anymore. Porn is literally destroying our ability to enjoy the good gift of sex that God has given us. And that doesn't even like come to mention all of the other ways that porn harms, um, harms others. Like It fuels the sex trafficking industry. It's a huge hindrance to missions. There are missions agencies that say, like, we can't accept any of our applicants to go be missionaries because they're stuck in this. But finally, and, and most importantly of all, the reason it's a big deal is that there's Scripture. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he writes, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. Which means all of us, all of us should be pursuing God's call to holiness in our lives even if we do it imperfectly. Now now look, I, I wanna just, man, I, I'm not trying to share all of this to shame anybody. I'm telling you this stuff not to shame you, but to like help us all hate porn. I mean, how can we ever find freedom from something if we don't really hate it? So, so I, I, I wanna start with this and just drive home that it is a big deal, it is a big deal. So that's the first big lie. The second big lie, really quick, you know, a lot of times we think it's just a men's issue, and it's not, Um, not even among uh, believers. Uh, The numbers say that one in three visitors to a pornography website are women, and 20% of Christian women use pornography pornography regularly. Um, I just wanted to say, by the way, um, because this often is seen as such a, like, only a men's issue, it's very, very hard to find good resources. Um, If you're someone who's not a man who struggles. This is a book that I came across called Purity is Possible, and it's just amazing. And so if you're a woman here tonight who has a, or maybe knows other female friends who are struggling, I just want to recommend this book. It's on the back page of the handout. Great little resource. So third myth is, well, maybe it'll go away when I get married, um, and that's just not true. Um, if it's hard to control now, you know, it's, there's nothing to say that marriage is like this magic wand. Uh, the numbers say so as well, that 55% of married men, 25% of married women uh, view pornography at least once a month. It increases the rate of marital infidelity by over 300%. And some of those numbers are there up on the screen on your handout. Um, and then, just man, the, the last two. Um, that just gets really to the heart of the matter. There are two lies that, that just go deep into our hearts. One lie is, I will never be free. And the second lie that goes with that is that I can deal with it on my own. And man, I... I want to invite all of us who resonate with, with especially that, that one, that I'll never be free, just to come back to the words of Jesus tonight. Because Jesus didn't die on a cross that we would languish for the rest of our lives in bondage. He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The gospel is more powerful than porn. The gospel is bigger than 20,149,793,284 drawer file cabinets filled with this stuff. It really is true. So there's your introduction to just what a huge deal this is. And the question now is, well, what what do we do about it? How do we help ourselves, and how do we help others? And the first path that you might take when it comes to seeking healing from pornography and sexual addiction, um, you might label the way of defeat. Um, Do we have sound for that video, Whitney? Okay, well, actually, I have a plan. We have this video, and uh, what I'm going to try here is if we like start it at the exact same time. I've got it on my computer here. I'll just like hold my little microphone here, and then maybe we can hear it. Well, how do you like that? It's pretty good. <laughs> but 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 the kind of advice that the woman in that video is given can be pretty similar to the kind of advice that Christians can give each other when it comes to porn. Try harder is the message that we get. And a lot of times that's kind of couched in like spiritualized language. Well, if you just prayed more, if you just read your Bible more, then it would just go away. And if you just like did those things enough, if you weren't like so lazy and you know, if you just like woke up earlier and, and had time with the Lord, those things aren't bad. But, but the problem is that that approach is really just about behavior modification. And behavior modification is accomplished by trying harder. In this approach, what you're doing is you're trying to simply change an outward behavior when in reality, that behavior is being fueled by deep-seated beliefs. And there's a diagram on your handout of what that looks like. It looks a little bit like an iceberg. Where on the top, well, those are the behaviors, and those might include addictive tendencies, or just all the ways that you kind of function on a day-to-day basis. But if you go a little below the surface, that kind of brings you into the territory of your thoughts and feelings. You maybe are somewhat aware of those, but sometimes it's hard even to know like what we're truly thinking and feeling. And then deep down, perhaps even beyond our perception, our core beliefs. That's the foundation of where those behaviors come from. And what that means is that dealing with, with sexual addiction by simply trying to try harder or trying to stop it, it's a little bit like... Weeds are growing in your garden, and and if you just come and you chop off a leaf or a stem every now and then, what's going to happen? They're just going to spring right back because the root has never been dealt with. Battling addiction through attempts at behavior change is like trying to kill a weed by thwacking off a leaf every now and then. Give it a month or a week or a day or even a few minutes, and that behavior is going to sprout right back up again because to kill a weed, you've got to deal with the roots. You've got to deal with the roots. It's not a matter of white-knuckling it. It's not a matter of, of like beating yourself up enough. It's not a matter of how many guardrails you have. I mean, guardrails are good and they're important. We'll talk about them later. But you will still remain vulnerable to porn unless you deal with the whole thing, tear the whole thing down, all the way down to the roots. And that's why the way of defeat results in simply nothing, or, or it can even get worse, The reality is is that mere behavior modification isn't powerful enough to break what's really going on in sexual addiction, and that's the shame cycle. And that's on your handout and on the screen as well. Here's how the shame cycle works. Somehow or another, sin happens. We fall into sin. Sin gives birth to shame. And shame is different than guilt. And guilt, guilt is about behavior. It's saying, I did something bad. But shame is about belief, and it says, I am bad. And when we're in the clutches of shame, our natural response is to hide out of fear that people will see us for for what we really are, which is why shame breeds secrecy, and secrecy, in turn, results in us separating or isolating ourselves from other people. And that very isolation becomes the perfect opportunity for falling prey to temptation again. And the result is that there becomes this cycle Of greater secrecy, greater isolation, greater pain, greater sin, greater shame. And just trying to stop it, just trying to try harder, isn't powerful enough to break this cycle of shame. All of those things are simply behavior modification, when in reality, there are deep seated beliefs that are driving all of that. And those beliefs might be things like you're worthless, I'm disqualified. God hates me. God can't ever love me again because of what I've done. That's just to chop off a leaf instead of pulling up a root. And putting this all together, the, the, the way of defeat only deals with, with the outward. And as long as those core beliefs, those, those like lines from your inner monologue, if those never get dealt with, those same behaviors will just crop up again and again and again. Do you remember in, in the Bible when the Apostle Paul says that there was this thorn that he had? He taught, calls it a thorn in the flesh. He actually very wisely like, doesn't tell us what this is, which means that you can kind of just read your own thorn into that and say, well, you know, I don't know what this is, but like, I can kind of relate. We don't know what it was. You know, we don't know that it had anything to do with, with, with sex. Maybe it did. We don't, we don't know. But, but what Paul says, is he says, you know, look, in order to humble me, in order to keep me from being conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations that God's been giving me, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now now here's the point. Do you notice what Paul calls his thorn? He calls it a messenger from Satan. And what that means is that every thorn, every struggle, is more than just a struggle. It's a struggle with a message attached. Like, if you struggle with body image, the message might be, you're fat, you're ugly, no one desires you. Or if it's like a sinful past, your message could be, man, you blew it, you missed it, there's no way God could use you. If it's singleness, the message might be, God's holding out on you. Like, you're doomed to loneliness, you're never going to be happy. So so don't you see, you can't just deal with the thorn. You can't just deal with the outward thing. There's a message that goes with the thorn. The thorn's about the behavior, but the message is about beliefs beliefs about who God is and what your true identity in him is. And that is the area where Satan holds us in bondage. So you can't fight addiction just on the surface. Instead, the way of victory means going deeper to dealing with core beliefs. And so in moving to that now, the way of victory, I just want to, I want to contrast this with what we've just looked at. And I want to say that like, this is a strategy for, deals with, for dealing with pornography and other forms of, of, sexual, of sexual brokenness that's different because it's the way of grace. Instead of working for an identity as a whole, cleansed child of God, the way of victory is working from an identity that we've already been given. And so it starts with grace. Grace. And there's probably no better story that I know to kind of illustrate what that looks like than the story of the prodigal son. I mean, you probably know the story about the guy who, who basically robs his dad and then goes off and spends it all and wastes his life away living in the world. I'm going to read, though, the latter part of that story at the turning point of his life. So it says, this is Luke 15, starting in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, "'How many of my father's hired men have food to spare?' And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, This is a story about someone probably our age who's gotten stuck in a rut. And the definition of a rut is a grave with the ends kicked out. I mean, he leaves his father's household. he goes out into the world, he ruins his life to the point where he's so poor that the only food that he can find for himself is pig slop. And it may even be here that like, the younger son gets involved in sexual sin. That's what the elder brother thinks. He says, you know, this son of, this son of yours who has squandered his wealth with prostitutes and we don't know if, if that was just like an accusation the elder brother made or whether it was actually grounded in truth. We, we, we don't know. But, but eventually, the younger brother hits rock bottom. He realizes that he's bought into these promises that the world has offered and they haven't delivered. You know, it says in that story that when he's out there feeding pigs, no one gave him anything. The world makes all these promises, but the world never gives. It can never deliver. It can never honor its promises. This is where the sun is. And so upon realizing his need, he decides, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go back to my father's house. But notice the son's attitude as he begins his journey home. He crafts this little speech to give his father that he hopes is going to win his father over. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. you know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just, just, just make me like one of your hired men. Just just." I'll, I'll, I'll work for you. I'll slay for you. Just, just whatever it takes, Dad. The son has a voice in his head that in order to be received back by his father, he has to work his way into his father's love. He says, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hire myself out. I'll do work for you. And he says, surely I'm not worthy ever to be called your son again. But where in this story does the father ever say, that he's no longer worthy to be a son. He doesn't. Where does the son get that idea? Is that from the voice of the father? Or is it from the voice of the enemy? Instead, as the son is almost home, the father sees him. He runs to him. And in that culture, picking up your skirts and running was something that a Middle Eastern patriarch just wouldn't do. It was too undignified. But the father is so overcome with love for his son that he humiliates himself to receive him back. And notice that the son doesn't have to grovel. I mean, he tries. He pulls out this little prepared speech, and he tries to win his father over with it. But did you notice that the father cuts him off before he's able to finish? And he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Sandals on his feet. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. And notice finally the very last words that the father speaks. He says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Does the father know what the son has done? Yes. Does the father approve of what the son has done? No. And yet he still calls him this son of mine. The son does nothing in this story. The only thing that he can do in this story is to just go back to his father. And whereas he expects to be rejected and condemned and made to grovel, when he hears the father's voice, he hears the words, This is my son. The way of the world is that you start with behaviors in order to create beliefs. We tell ourselves, if I could just change my behavior, if I could just stop looking at porn, if I could just stop fantasizing or reading erotica or, or sleeping with people I'm not married to, then I could believe I'm a son. Then I could believe that God loves me. That's the way of the world. But the way of the gospel is you start with beliefs, and those beliefs lead to behaviors. The gospel says that in spite of all that we have done, God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for all of the sexual sin that we have ever committed, or are committing, or will ever commit. And in one glorious exchange, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our secrets are put on Jesus. And all of his righteousness, all of his integrity, all of his purity, including his sexual purity, all of that is put on us. I mean, just imagine, you know, the weight of the 20 billion, however many million file cabinets, multiplied times a million billion trillion, all of that weight is on the back of Jesus Christ. And he takes that weight on his own back. He nails it to the cross where it will hang dead forever. And what that means is that instead of us working for an identity as a son or as a daughter, we work from a new identity that God has already given to us. Let me read you this quote that's on your handout. It says that in a culture of grace, we work from a restored identity in Christ as opposed to working for it. That's what the gospel is all about. And the new identity that God has given us is just like an eternal Christmas present. Like you can spend the rest of your life unpacking the identity that God has given us in Christ. And it just gets better and better the deeper down you go. And it starts with that great exchange. The cornerstone of the identity we have is that God exchanged himself for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because of that great exchange, we get washed completely clean. I mean, this, this is in the Bible. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, thought about how crazy this is, that, like, in light of all that we're talking about, like, this is in the Bible. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that includes sexual sin of any kind, any degree, any amount. And just in case you don't believe me, Paul says it himself. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The healing process begins with grace. It begins with hearing the voice of the Father who, despite all that we've done, still speaks over us our true identity as his beloved. It's from that place of grace that we move forward in the healing process. And the first step of that process is to let grace lead you in to confession and into repentance. Because on its own, grace without truth would just be sentimentality. But in the gospel, grace and truth always go together. The turning point in the story of the prodigal son is when the son faces up with the truth of his situation. It's when he comes to his senses that his journey back to the Father begins. And it's a journey that passes through confessing and repenting to the Father for what he's done. And in the same way, facing up to the truth will be the turning point in our own process of healing. The natural tendency of the human heart is to deny or cover our sin. It's to minimize it or to blame shift or to ignore it or to say, you know, oh, it was because of my upbringing or it was because of like this painful experience I've been through. It was because of something else someone did to me. And of course, you know, it's easy to see why we live in denial. Because there is no process more painful than owning up to the evil in our own hearts. But starting from God's love enables us to face the truth about our sin. And this step is so essential. Because if we never own up to our own guilt, we're never going to feel the need to return to the arms of the Father. We're just going to constantly say, like, I'll I'll do it on my own. I'm okay. I don't need the only thing that will bring life and healing. The journey of healing has to pass through the realm of repentance. I want to share just a few things of kind of what that looks like. The first thing is it looks like ownership of guilt. Now, I want to just be really clear here that there are certain things that we actually don't need to be guilty for. Like, if you are married or if one day you will be married, There's no need to feel guilty for enjoying sex with your spouse. Like, sex is this amazing gift. Like, God gave it because he's good. You don't need to feel guilty about that. You don't need to feel guilty if someone has violated you sexually. If someone did something to you and you still carry the scars of that, that is not something that is your fault. It's not something that you're responsible for. So I'm not saying that everything below the belt is something that necessarily we need to own up to but 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 the reason that this is still so important is that look it's been said that that we don't change unless the cost of staying put outweighs the hard and high cost that change requires and the way for that to happen is to own up to the fact that before God we are guilty we are all sexual sinners Pornography isn't evil just because it harms ourselves and harms others. It's evil because it's an affront to a holy God. It's an example of not just physical adultery, but of spiritual adultery, of saying that a bunch of fake and coerced naked bodies is more precious and desirable than the stunning and breathtaking and beautiful love of God. And repentance means the hard work of admitting that, that, that you have a problem, that, that unless there's a change, we're going to die. And that kind of leads into a second aspect of of what repentance looks like. It looks like a hatred of sin. And it's really important to say that because repentance is not just hating the effects of sin. It's not just hating what sin does to you or the way that it makes you feel bad. But it means actually hating the sin itself. Hating it for what it is. A cheap substitute for God. An affront to the God who has lavished his love on us. I was talking with, with a friend of mine who was the pastor of a church and at one point did a series on the subject of sexual brokenness. And he, and he said that in the follow-up, as people in his church began to process and to deal with the many sexual wounds that they experienced or, or forms of sexual addiction, that for those who were in bondage to addiction, that in 90% of cases, one of two things happened. One was that people found freedom really, really quickly. The other was that, in 90% of cases, people didn't find freedom right away. And, And actually, as time went on, they really, very few of them, actually managed to move on to much freedom at all. And he said that the main distinction between those two groups was that the group that never found freedom never really came to hate the sin. We have to hate the sin. And it's not surprising that to do that, To own up to something as painful um, as brokenness would leave us feeling exactly that. It would leave us feeling broken, not just in spirit, but of heart. And almost by nature, I think we, especially like evangelical Christians, we, we, we resist that. We are so not good at recognizing that sometimes the most valuable and precious thing that we can do is to lament. Just think of how many of the Psalms are filled with grief. Of David or whoever it is writing, just like pouring out his heart and saying, everything sucks right now. Like I am broken. I am broken about the world. I'm broken about how far away you feel right now, God. I'm broken because of my sin. I mean, that's just so countercultural to what we usually say. We say, Well, I mean you know, I, I shouldn't wallow in my sin, should I? You know, shouldn't I just be like constantly happy, clappy, rejoicing, cheerful all the time that God has forgiven me? Woo! You know, like. Just pretend like nothing's ever wrong. And man, I wish that word the way that it is, but God leaves room for grief. God encourages lament. If Jesus was able to say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then surely we can turn to God and we can bring our brokenness to him as well. And when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote his confession in Psalm 51. It includes these words. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And what that means is the, the very shame that can feel so crippling is actually a gateway into the arms of the Father. The sacrifice that God never ceases to delight in is when we are broken. When we're broken about our sin, when we're broken about what we've done, when all of our self-salvation schemes are completely spent, and we just come to the end of ourselves. Where the end of your rope is, is where God's rope begins. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart he will never despise. And finally, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that that kind of brokenness is like a set of empty hands. and saying, like, man, Lord, I'm finally done just trying to deal with this on my own. Like, I'm finally done trying to fight this thing in my own power. I just like, all I can bring to you is just my emptiness, my empty hands, and just, just my need. But it's when we come to God with that kind of posture that he's able to fill us with himself, with a fresh vision of God, and with a, a fresh vision for how he can and will bring freedom. So, this is probably one of the heaviest parts of what I'm going to share tonight. And again, I'm not trying to say this just to like, you know, pour it over anyone. But the reason that it's so important to move from grace into truth is that as long as we live in denial, we will never find freedom. And now just finally, last thing I want to share tonight is just a little bit about the journey of healing. Um, Healing is a whole lot more complex than just simply saying, if you just read your Bible more, or if you just prayed more, you know, sometimes God really can bring instant and supernatural delivery, and you might even use those things to do it. So I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't do those things, but I'm saying that, like, for most of us, the reality is that the the process of healing takes a long time. It's a journey, and it's a multifaceted journey that includes physical, emotional, spiritual, and practical components. And so really quick, I'm just going to walk through each of those four things, starting with, with the physical. Because it's really important to understand that there actually is science and, 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 and physical realities that underlie trauma and addiction. And this is what gets ignored when we, when we as Christians just try to spiritualize everything. and We overlook that, that unless there are those rare cases where God does bring kind of sudden instant deliverance, overcoming addiction is an arduous process even just at the body level alone. And to see that, just want to share a few things about like, the way that your brain works. So all of us have brains, or hopefully we all have brains. I don't know. I'm suspicious about maybe a few of us, but uh, maybe you're suspicious about me. I don't know. All of us have brains, and in your brain, there are two key players. One, is called, it's called a prefrontal cortex. It's like the CEO of your brain. It's responsible for reasoning, for decision making. Another component of our brain is called the limbic system. And I don't know if I have any science nerds here, but hopefully if there are, like you guys are all kind of jiving with me and just getting pumped about all this. Yeah, I see some hands. Okay, so this is the science part. You guys should be pumped. So, so you've got the prefrontal cortex that's kind of like the CEO does all the reasoning, all the, all the decision making. Then there's the limbic system. The limbic system, it processes your emotions. It includes things like pleasure and pain, and it's also your brain's survival system. So it's responsible for your flight or fight instinct. When like you go through like a really hard or painful thing, it's your limbic system that kind of steps it up into gear and says, "Ah, you got to fly from that, or you got to fight against that." Now, one really key characteristic about the way the brain works is that repetition of behavior creates brain pathways. So, way back in 1949, there was a famous, I think, a neurobiologist or some science guy who came up with this little saying that uh, it says that neurons that fire together wire together. So, neurons are like your brain cells, right? So when your, your neurons, like, kind of follow these certain behaviors, and you do that over and over again, they kind of link up. They wire together. They get sticky. And it's almost like you can imagine, like, taking a, like a, a hoe or a trowel or a rake, and you're just digging these grooves into the ground that make it easier for, for, for someone to walk down. The brain does the same thing. And this is important when it comes to the area of pornography and addiction. Because normally the way that, that it's supposed to work is that, you, that the prefrontal cortex, the CEO, it's, it's designed to put the brakes on your limbic system. It's designed to keep your emotions from driving your decision making. But instead, um, or, but in instances of things like trauma, so like extreme pain or addiction, extreme pleasure, the limbic system takes over, so to speak, and it bypasses that prefrontal cortex. And what this means is that over time, you stop using your prefrontal cortex to like tell yourself, man, you know, I really shouldn't look at porn right now. Like, that's a really bad idea. Because your limbic system is, is, is taking over. It's kind of revving up, and it's saying, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. It'll feel so good. Look at this picture. This picture shows the effect that addiction can have on the brain. So on the left-hand side is what a healthy brain looks like. You can see that there's like a, a whole prefrontal cortex at the top of your brain. The other picture is a heroin brain. And then the picture on the the far right is a porn brain, a brain that's addicted to pornography. And what's happened here is that because your limbic system has gotten so used to skipping over the prefrontal cortex, your prefrontal cortex is actually atrophied. Isn't that crazy? And in addition to seeing the effect of addiction on the brain, it's also important to recognize that trauma can also have a pretty important impact on how the brain develops into early childhood. So in your early childhood, that's when your brain is growing. Look at this picture. Here's a picture on the left-hand side of the brain of a healthy three-year-old child. The brain on the right is actually from a child who's the exact same age, but it's from a child who was an orphan and who suffered severe emotional trauma and neglect. So what this means is that you actually physically carry your experiences and your trauma with you. It's in your brain. It affects the way the brain develops. And you might look at all that and say, "Man, like, how can there be any hope then? Like, if I've gotten deep into this stuff, you know, my brain is literally like the wrong shape. What do I do?" The good news about this is that in the last couple of decades, we've actually discovered that the brain doesn't stay the same. That the good news is that the brain can change over time. As instead of old habits, you adopt new habits, and it's like the brain rebuilds itself. And by the way, the, the, this this science about how trauma in your childhood can affect brain development actually brings in another significant facet of what the healing process involves and that's the emotional part of it usually behind pornography or other forms of sexual addiction is some kind of pain and pornography becomes this way to just medicate it to take like a, it's almost like taking a brain bath where you just get to like let go and forget about all of the stuff that's all of the pain that's dogging your heels and just like Find a way to immerse yourself in pleasure. Wounds can come from all kinds of places. They can come from traumatic experiences throughout the course of your life. And that includes not only what you might call big T experiences. You know, formally you might say that those, that's trauma of infringement. Meaning like someone has violated you, someone has done something shocking, shockingly wrong to you. You know, it's like maybe think of like PTSD and war veterans. But there's also little t trauma, which is trauma of abandonment. So things like neglect. You know, so imagine like the family that you grew up in. You know, I don't know tonight if if every single one of you had fathers and mothers who constantly affirmed how much they love you. Or who were there for you, emotionally available for you. Those things matter. And you actually see this in scripture. So think about the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He goes off to Egypt, he winds up becoming this pretty important guy. Or like he rises to become second in command of the whole empire. You think, man, this guy's got it pretty good. You know, how could he kind of be walking in pain and, and stuff from the past? But then you come to Genesis 41. And this is just so crazy. Joseph has two children while he's in exile in Egypt. And it says in Genesis 41, verse 51, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. And that's a name that comes from the Hebrew word forget. And he said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. So this is crazy. Like, you might think, oh, well, you know, he says, okay, Manasseh, forgetfulness. Well, I've forgotten all about it. Well, clearly he hasn't because he names his own son in light of the emotional trauma he experienced from his family of origin. I mean, he's literally passing on his wound to the next generation. You know, it's been said, hurt people hurt people. Which is why, like, if you dig back deep into, like, what's happened in your family past, a lot of times you'll see the same patterns that occur again and again and again. So the reason for for highlighting these two facets, the emotional side, the physical side of healing, is not to try to justify or excuse sin, but simply to show the complexity of what it means to walk through the healing process. And what that also means is that it, it means that you need to have patience for yourself. Because, like at the physical level, for example, it literally takes time for your brain to rewire itself. so the physical side matters, the emotional side matters, and then also, of course, there's a spiritual side to this as well, and what that looks like is replacing a love for porn with instead a love for God. You know I think about the story when Jesus speaks of a house that was swept clean of all of these demons and then After the house is empty, the demon goes and he brings seven of his demon buddies back to the house, and the house is actually worse off than it was at the beginning. Failure to stop looking at porn isn't the problem. The problem is to start falling in love with God. Because if the house is swept clean, even if you are able to break the addiction or the pattern of the behavior, if that doesn't get replaced with Jesus, then you're just as vulnerable to fall right back into the rut all over again. You know, so let me just give you an example of this. You know, most of you are probably sitting here thinking this whole time, man, when's he going to be done? I just, I, this stuff is so awkward and just so hard to hear. Well, but now, you know, suppose as you're sitting here thinking about all I've been saying about pornography and sexual brokenness, now I say all of a sudden, okay, I want you all to think of a gigantic hippopotamus dancing ballet in a pink tutu. What are you all thinking about? You thinking about pornography? No, you're thinking about a giant hippopotamus dancing ballet in a pink tutu. So what? What did I just do? What I did is I distracted you from porn by moving you from one thought to another thought. The spiritual healing process is simply beating porn by being distracted by Jesus. By being so caught up in how he's so much better than anything that the world might offer you sexually that you just like forget about the very drives and addictions that you that, that once drove you. There, there's an old guy, an old theologian, who, who spoke of this as the expulsive power of a new affection. And that's like 16th, 17th century speak for basically saying, like, when you fall in love with one thing, you forget about the old thing. Like, when you fall in love with Jesus, that expels the old things that you were, that, that you were so drawn to. And we don't have time to go into all the ways that this works tonight, but this is where all of the things that we do at Thrive, community, reading the scripture, praying with each other, all of those things, that's where this comes in. And the point is not simply to kind of get a notch on your belt and say, well, I've read my Bible for today. The point is to fall in love with God so that you'll just be distracted by Jesus to the point where you won't even go back to all of those old coping mechanisms. And then finally, one final aspect of the healing process is practical, the practical side. Absolutely, it is important for there to be healthy guardrails in your life. Because, you know, it's not as though you can just kind of tell yourself, okay, you know, I'm ready to be done with this. I'm just going to change. Sometimes you actually do need the rails to keep from going off the rails. And that might look like accountability, whether that's a group or a particular other person that you're able to be accountable to and to confess things to. It might look like internet filters. It might look like switching from a smartphone to a dumb phone. And now you're all thinking, man, there's no way I could ever do that. But you can do it. You can do it. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Uh, or you know might even mean like temporarily getting rid of your computer. Um, I actually had a friend give me his. I think he gave me his computer at one point just because like I you know I can't have this around. I got to get rid of it. So so guardrail is really important. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going into that. Um, but then the last thing is you can't do this alone. You can't do this alone. You have to do this with your brothers if you're a brother and your sisters, if you're a sister, in Christ, standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder with you. And so, I'm actually really, really pumped to tell you that going forward, Thrive is going to be offering gender-specific groups for anyone who wants to to, to pursue freedom from sexual addiction. And uh, we're going to use for that um, some great resources that have been offered by Pure Desire Ministries. A lot of the material from tonight um, I've been helped by them in putting a lot of that material together. They're a great resource. These groups are going to be closed. They're going to be confidential. And they're going to require commitment. And, and the way that this is going to work is if you're here tonight and you're a guy or you're a girl and you, you're interested in being a part of one of these groups, what we're not going to do is we're not going to like pass around a sheet of paper where you you know put down your name because you know, we don't want that to fall into the wrong hands or be seen by the wrong eyes. Like This is something that... Like we want anyone to be able to come forward and do this in a way that feels safe. And so instead, our, our, our strategy on this is that we are going to hold um, an informational meeting for guys and an informational meeting for girls where you can just show up without having to kind of wave your flag and announce to the world, hey, I'm, I'm going to this thing where I'm going to like finally deal with like this addiction I have to porn. So, so if you're a guy, um, there's going to be a meeting that will be happening on Saturday, this Saturday, 15th of June at 1 p.m. here at this church over in the youth room. And if you're a girl, that meeting will be happening on Sunday, June 30th at 2 p.m. The location is TBD. We'll try to announce that next week. Now, what I want you all to do, um, if you could put the other thing up on the slide, Whitney, the second little detail there. Oh, okay. So, uh, okay. Every single guy in this room, I want you to take out a phone and I want you to take a snapshot of that. And the reason I say every single guy is so that way, like, You know, if you don't want to like let it be known that you want to take a picture to show up at the meeting, like that way everyone's doing it. So every single guy, just like take a snapshot of that, so that way you'll have the details if you want them. Give everyone a chance to do that. And then uh, next slide, same thing for girls. Um, I'm not going to actually do this because I'm not a girl, but I'll just like I'll I'll, like you know pantomime it. This is like my air photo, and so you guys, if you want to, can can uh, just take a photo of that. So. You know, if you're someone like, man, I don't, you know, it's not a big deal for me. I'm not going to go to this. You can just, you know, delete the photo after you're done here tonight just pretend like, ah, you know, not even on there. So just so you know, um, if you can't make it to those meetings, if that's a time that doesn't work, that doesn't mean you can't be involved. Uh, but what it does mean, if you're a guy, come talk to either Devante or myself if you'd like to become a part of one of these groups. Or uh, talk to Amanda if you're a girl. Um, and with that, this is uh, the end of my talk. And uh, just thank you so much for enduring all of this. Um, And as, and as we come to the end, um, I want to say that, that in all of this, God is good. <laughs> Amen? Amen? He's good enough. He, he, he's good enough. He's good for loving us enough to let us talk about a hard topic like this. He's good for offering us freedom, and he's good for lavishing on us a love we don't deserve. So if you don't hear anything else tonight, hear that. I want to give a few instructions about what we're going to do now, um, just some logistics here. We're going to move in a few minutes to a small group time. Like I said at the beginning, we're not going to do our usual small groups. Instead, um, anyone who's a guy is going to be in one group. Everyone who's a girl will be in another group. Um, The guys' group is going to meet in the classroom in the far back corner of this building. So down the hall, kind of where the bathrooms are, that classroom there. Um, And then the ladies are going to be meeting in the youth room over there. The guys' time is going to be led by Devontae, and I'll be kind of um, jumping in to help a little bit. The girls' time will be led by Allison and Grace. And and tonight, these groups um, are meant to just be an open, free-flowing time to process um, what we've heard about porn and sexual addiction, um, including the impact that it may have had on our lives personally. Um, We want this to be a place that is safe and and where there's freedom to share and to confess our own personal experiences. Um, And by no means does anyone have to share. There's no pressure to share. There's not even any pressure to go to these groups if you don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, And there's no pressure to share your own struggles, Um, although... Hopefully, at some point, I would, I would hope and pray that there will be a person or a group that you can feel comfortable sharing those things uh, to move forward and finding healing. And when you get into those groups, uh, your leaders are going to read out loud some ground rules. I mean, the first one of those ground rules is that these groups are confidential. Nothing said in these groups leaves those groups. Got that? I mean, about 9.05 or so, we're going to come back to this room to have a closing song. I mean, at that point, if you're feeling that, that you st- want to talk to someone more about this, receive prayer for this. Uh, there will be leaders around who can who can do that. Um, and then also just a reminder um, to look forward to next week where we're going to wrap up this little series, Jesus, Sex, and Secrets, um, with a little uh, powerful testimony from a guest speaker. Um, and so we're going to move into our groups. Um, just as we do that, um, I think I, I need to mention that I don't know that any chairs got set up. So what I'm going to ask is, um, girls, as you are going to your group, if you could just grab... Um, those chairs, the kind of darker ones over there in that section, just like every, every girl, grab a chair, bring that chair. You can set them up in a circle in that room. Guys, same thing. Uh, those darker chairs over there, just grab a chair, carry it with you, put it in a circle, um, set it up. And just as we do that, I'm going to just wrap all this up by reading out loud to you a prayer for all of us as a Thrive community, as we process through this tonight. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for letting us talk about the subject of pornography and sexual sin. Thank you that you love us, that no matter what we have done, are doing, or will do, you love us anyway. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for nailing our sexual sin to the cross. Thank you for making us clean, new, and pure. Father, I'm going to pray tonight for anyone who is here who is struggling. Would you help them taste your love and your goodness? Would you help them be free from addiction? I pray for anyone tonight who is helping a friend who is struggling. Would you give wisdom, grace, and truth to them to contend for their brothers and sisters? Father, would you bless us with the promise of abundant life that Jesus promised? Would you bless us with hope joy, and peace that is grounded in the almighty, infinite, timeless sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary's cross. Would you bless us with optimism about our futures? Would you bless us with freedom in the healing process? Would you bless us with shoulder-to-shoulder community that fights for the freedom of our brothers and sisters in Christ? And would you bless your young adult community with revival through there being freedom from the bondage of sexual sin? In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.